The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to Novel Dialogue a podcast sponsored by the Society for Novel Studies and produced in partnership with Public Books, an online magazine of arts, ideas, and scholarship. My name is Thara Menon, and I'm the host for this final episode of season three. We've had an all-star cast this season, including conversations between Chang Ray Lee and Anne Enling Chang, Damon Galgut and Andrew Vanderflees, Ruth Ezeki and Rebecca Evans. We hope that you listen to them all. Today, it is my great pleasure to welcome Colm Tobin, who will be in conversation with Joseph Resnick. Colm Tobin is the author of 10 novels, including The Master, Brooklyn, and my personal favorite, The Testament of Mary. His fiction has won too many awards and prizes to list, but the post-colonial girl in me can't resist mentioning that three of his novels have been shortlisted for the Booker Prize. To borrow the words of D.T. Max from his recent New Yorker profile of column, Tobin's novels typically depict an unfinished battle between those who know what they feel and those who don't, between those who have found a taut peace within themselves and those who remain unsettled. His most recent novel, The Magician, which imagines the life of Thomas Mann, is no exception. Colm is also the author of two collections of short stories, several books of criticism, and he is a regular contributor to the New York Review of Books. He is the Irene and Sidney B. Silverman Professor of the Humanities at Columbia University and the Chancellor of the University of Liverpool. A few weeks ago, Colm was named the new laureate for Irish fiction. Joseph Rezek is Associate Professor of English and the Director of the American and New England Studies Program at Boston University. He is the author of London and the Making of Provincial Literature, Aesthetics and the Transatlantic Book Trade, 1800 to 1850. Joe has published wide, widely in the fields of book history, early American literature, early Black Atlantic literature, and British Romanticism. This semester, Joe is teaching The History of the Novel in English, a survey course he inaugurated when he began teaching at Boston University over a decade ago. I can think of no better person to be in conversation with Colin than Joe. Now the fun begins. I turn things over to you, Joe, and I get to sit back and listen. Uh, great. Thank you, uh, Tara, for that uh, introduction and for bringing uh, Colin and I together for this conversation. I'm totally thrilled and excited to ask him questions about the craft of novel making. Now, it's probably obvious that Colin is the best person on the planet to discuss the question of how novelists make novels because he's published novels about novelists. Most recently, of course, The Magician, which I loved um, for so many reasons, mainly because it gets us into the mind and life of Thomas Mann. So I'm gonna ask Colm to read a little bit from The Magician, but I first need to ask him a question about that book. The word magician, um, as referred to Thomas Mann, for those of you who don't know, came from 
a nickname that his children gave him after a kind of a costume event. But of course, the magician is a term for the novelist, um, someone who creates a world out of thin air. Um, and I want to ask Colm first about this idea of choosing that term to describe Thomas Mann. Um, it's pretty explicit in the novel. Uh, there's, a, there's a moment when Thomas, after the publication of his first blockbuster novel, he says there was some source for it, for Buddenbrooks, that was outside of himself, beyond his control. This is Colm about thinking about what Thomas Mann had thought. It was like something in magic, something that would not come again so easily. So obviously when we read novels, it's a world creating event for readers. You describe Thomas Mann as having coming from outside of him. And I just wondered if you could reflect on the novelist as a creator of magic, as a magician. Um, I think there are two things. The first is ironic. The first is that um, in the novel I wrote about Henry James, it's called a master. And he was called a master by many people. It didn't seem like that when he was alone. He didn't ever feel in control. So that the title is ironic in that you see the public life where it seems like the master has come into the room and the private figure that it does not seem to him or to his close associates that he is in fact in control in that way. So too with the magician where, as you say, his children as a, as a joke name call him magician. He invokes the word magic in, even in titles, the magic mountain or Mario and the magician. And he has magic occurring in, even in, say, um, Dr. Faust's sort of pact with the devil or even in scenes in the Magic Mountain. And, um, but, but that he himself, in, we, we learned from his diaries, was much more uneasy in the world that, that, that he really doesn't, he, also, he, he wasn't a, a, someone who, who, who set the world on fire. He was, he was often deliberate you know, um, very careful in the way he proceeded in the world. So there was, there was an element of, the, it was the absolute opposite to images. But the question you asked is not that. The question you've asked is, can be answered in this way, that you can plan a novel and you can even know each day what it is you're seeking to achieve, but you cannot plan the images that will come into your head unbidden as you work. So that as you're in a sentence, the next one comes with an image which you had never thought of before. And it seems to have come automatically as a result of just the rhythms of the prose bringing it into being. And you follow it and see where it will take you. It's not as though it's loose or, or that it is in control. That, that's always nonsense saying, you know, a novel wrote itself or, you know, I didn't feel in control. That's always nonsense. That's writers talking nonsense. And um, you're always in control. You can always just look and say that isn't working and it's going to be deleted. Um, but what happens that's true is something occurs to you from the blue. And that blue is a strange place because you think a, a second ago, I didn't know this. And now it's here. And it's not just coming as an idea. It's coming not, and not merely as an image, but as a rhythm, as it's coming in words. And it isn't that the words are leading me, but, but it seems as though they are. I mean, it, it's an effortlessness that can come. And the effortless, effortlessness can only come if you've been working. And often it comes if you've been working for days and you're living in language. So that language comes to you in the same way as breath comes to you. All, almost the same way as breath comes to you. I mean, almost naturally. 
And so, yes, something like magic can happen in a given moment where you can look back and think that that came from nowhere. And, uh, and, and it, it seemed so easy when it came. But if I had thought about it, it wouldn't have happened. And so that's the magic. You know, you mentioned the master, which I reread in the last couple of weeks. And it was a great experience for me to compare the portrait of Henry James to the portrait of Thomas Mann. And I had assumed in reading the master the first time that we were getting a lot of how Colin Tobin writes in the portrait of Henry James. In reading the Thomas Mann book, it is a, to me, it's a very different portrait of a very different novelist. Um, and part of that had to do with James seeming to, I mean, he's obviously a different person, but his creative process as depicted in the master is very um, controlled and reserved. Whereas in the, in the magician, Thomas Mann is a little bit, he seems to have less control over the things that inspire him. So I, I just wanted to ask before you read from The Magician, is going from James, these two novels about novelists, going from James to Mon, did you see that they were more alike um, than different? And then how do you as a novelist fit in sort of, sort of between them? Um, I think there's a great difference between anyone gay um, or closeted gay or whatever word you want to use about the 19th century born in um, 1843 as James was and born in 1875 as Mann was. And I think those 30 years made a very big difference about self-consciousness and what you felt you could say or not say. Um, James tended to be very, very careful. Um, he didn't keep diaries. He kept notebooks, which was about work, but he didn't keep diaries. He burned most of the letters he received and he expected other people to burn them, which of course they didn't. But, the, but I think the big question is that Mann's first novel published when he was 26 is Buddenbrooks. And it really is personal, he, where he describes a possible person that's very close to him and describes his own death, but describes his father, his mother, his grandparents, re rebuilds. It, it, it would be as though Henry James had gone. I mean, in, to some extent, he does it at, in Washington Square, which is his grandmother's house, and the opening of Portrait of a Lady in Albany, which is his other grandmother's house. But he doesn't follow through with describing, for example, the James family, which would have been an extraordinary novel to have himself in William and Alice with their father and mother, but that's what man did. So it meant that man's trajectory from then on could be as personal as he wanted it to be. And he could also let things spring on him, such as death in Venice, which, you know, imagine wasn't planned, wasn't part of a strategy. Um, and, um, and of course he didn't have the same, James was all up to the, up to about 1900, since, you know, you're interested in the book trade, you know, that he was really writing for serialization. Portrait of a Lady is written for serialization. And you can see it in the form of the book, but you can also see it in the content of the book. Man didn't have that, have that problem. His wife was tremendously rich and Buddenbrooks had made so much money that he, that he never had to write with any interest in the market. The market came to him. He didn't go to the market. It's the opposite with James. So, so I think there are many differences between them, but also James had no rich domestic life. He had servants. Man developed this massive brood who made a huge amount of noise. Yeah. Um, James didn't have noise, so there's a huge difference between them in that sense. Also, the big, the big thing is the two world wars. <laughs> I mean, nobody. I mean, man was everyone in his world was affected so deeply by those two wars that you know, James, oddly enough, you know, comes into adulthood 
after the American Civil War, which he doesn't fight it, of course, and is, is, is dying already when the First World War begins. It doesn't stop him getting fired up as a huge patriot in England in a crazy way at about 19, 1914. But, but, but he lives his life in peacetime, which is an unusual period. And James, so you don't have to worry about what was James doing during the Boer War. I mean, he was writing a novel, you know, he, he wasn't affected by these wars. So, so I think that's a big difference between the two. Would you, would you read something from The Magician? And um, one of the differences between James and, and Mann is that Henry James, I don't know if he was tone deaf, but he had no interest in music. Um, he was very interested in painting. And, um, but Mann was really fired up with music. He was brought up with music and being, being a German of that generation, he, you know, that, that tradition of the, of the 19th century symphonic tradition. The problem with the 19th century symphonic tradition, now that he's in California and it's 1942, is that it that emotion being stirred up by the big orchestras is an emotion that's really got elements of poison in it. But the chamber music doesn't. His son, Michael, is a viola player. There's actually a recording, you can get a CD of his son playing. You know, it's, it's, he, he was a well-known player at the time. He had a string quartet and they're in California. And Thomas Mann, who has built this new house in Pacific Palisades, asks him, Will, your, will you and your quartet come to play Opus 132, which is one of the beautiful Beethoven late quartets, which has this beautiful, long, slow movement, which is a sort of like a prayer of thanksgiving. And um, he asks his son to do this, and his son agrees, and the, and the quartet comes. Now, you have to remember, that man, of course, once four young men come into the room, his eyes are, I mean, he's, if you know, this business of gazing is something that man and James have in common. You know, people now really object to the male gaze. Well, if you want the male gaze, here, here, here is the male gaze. But of course, it's also the question of, um, he's, he, what, what I'm writing here is a sort of code for Jewishness. I mean, when, when he's looking at them, what he's really looking at is some shadow of a, of a Jewish world that he knows has gone in Europe. And it's the world his wife, his wife was Jewish and um, has been part of. I don't use the word Jewish here, but I, I think you'll see Thomas's wife is called Katia. His son is called Michael. When the music began, Thomas was struck by its daring, the quiet release of a sort of anguish, followed by a tone that suggested struggle, with hints that the struggle brought pain, both pain and joy. He must, he knew, stop thinking. Give up trying to find simple meaning in the music, but let it instead enter his spirit, listen to it as though he might never get another chance. It was hard not to look at the players, however. Thomas watched them, um, however, not, it was hard not to look at the players, however, not to study their seriousness or concentration. Thomas watched them, taking their cues from the lead violinist. The lead violinist and Michael on the viola seemed to spar taking energy from each other. The music edged towards resolution and held back for a moment before it soared. He glanced over at Catty, who smiled at him. This was the world of her parents, who had hosted many such chamber concerts in their house in Munich. Out of this old world from which they had been forced to flee, Michael, their son, had emerged as the one of musical talent. Thomas watched him playing with slow care, showing no emotion, as handsome and self-possessed. He let the viola's dark sound hit against the sweeter sound of the two violins. As the music continued, the lead violinist and the cellist shed some of their Americanness, the rangy, friendly, masculine openness 
apparent earlier was replaced, he saw, by vulnerability, sensitivity, until it could have been Germans or Hungarians from decades before. Maybe he thought it was merely something he imagined, something caused by the force of the four instruments playing together as they found moments of pure connection with one another and then went silent or played solo. But Thomas could entertain the idea that ghosts from an earlier time, ghosts who had once walked the streets of, Europe, of the European cities carrying instruments, ghosts on their way to rehearsal, were present here in this new house overlooking the Pacific Ocean in Southern California. Wow, beautiful. Um, I, I think mu music is a great contrast, contrasting artistic form to fiction in your novel, The Magician. And, and, and reading this scene reminds me of, um, I don't know if it's, it's probably right after that or something in your novel where, where Thomas Mann says, um, composers can think about God and the ineffable, and the, and the ineffable. We have to imagine the buttons on a coat as novelists. The grubby business of writing novels is what Mann calls novel writing after he's thinking about music. So, you know, I I'm teaching the history of the novel right now. I have 13 wonderful students. Um, I asked them if they had any questions for you because um, I told them I was talking to a great contemporary novelist. And one of them had a great question related to this, um, which is we think of the novel as a great, a capacious literary form, uh, a giant form that you can put lots of things into. It's an elastic form, it's an experimental form, but they wanted to know if you thought the novel had limitations as a medium. Um, and the scene about music with Mon listening to the music and the way that music brings ghosts um, into the into the presence of a room, right? Um, and I'm thinking also of sort of Proust's interest in music in in search of lost time with the little um, uh, with the mu music in that book. Anyway, is for you is music a great contrasting medium to to fiction writing, or do you see them do you see them competing at all, or do you see them as complementary? I guess. Um you know, you're right that the, the novel is a capacious form and, and, it's, and it's hybrid. You know, in other words, it, it comes from so many different sources, the oral source, the folktale source, the sermon, the pamphlet, the satirical pamphlet. Um, and uh, it, um, you know, it makes its way through the 19th century with everybody trying out one more thing with it to see where it will go, the epistolary, the epistolary novel. Um, the, but the big issue for me is, um, the novel has a secular space, that the novel loves things. It loves money, it loves disappointment. It loves um, people getting chances and choices and it loves coincidence. And um, so that it's, it's, it's always pushing you towards, um, would a new car help the scene if they bought a new car? You know, the, the constant business of material possessions of, um, and the next generation, things being passed on to them. You can't put a miracle into a novel. It's very, very difficult to say that he prayed that, you know, his bank account would be full in the morning. And it was, <laughs> you know, I mean, in a way, the novel was set up to stop that sort of nonsense. From, from, from coming from the religious side of things, you know, that the novel is standing firm in a time of, you know, early capitalism when people were suddenly, uh, uh, you know, aware more that they 
could become rich, you know, by, you know, by chance, by choice, by, you know, <laughs> and we're not having it. You know, if the next thing happens, it happens as a result of the last thing. It may be surprising, but it cannot be fully miraculous. What then of the soul? Can we trace the word soul in the novel from its beginnings to now and see when, when it's used? Sometimes novelists use it far too much when they mean something else. But um, Henry James uses it in very interesting ways where he talks about, um, for example, when Isabel Archer in Portrait of Lady is watching Madame Merle, who's talking all about that a person comes with their shell, meaning their possessions, their house, their clothes, their art. And you cannot divide the person from the shell. And Isabel is saying, but what about the soul? She doesn't ask it because, but what about the soul? Like, does she have to imagine that aspect of Madame Merle? And it becomes the crucial question in the novel, in fact, that Isabel is seeking something. Her yearning is not a material yearning. It's for something oddly spiritual. And um, Madame Merle's is entirely hard and material. And that, in fact, is the drama. In The Golden Bowl, there's a moment where Maggie Verver is watching her mother-in-law, Charlotte Stant, giving a tour of the art collection to the locals in some English place. And she suddenly, as she hears her speak, it seems like the shriek of a soul in pain. And you realize that, that James has been moving all along towards attempting to enter some spiritual space where redemption is, is, is actually a serious question. And so um, that's the problem we face. Um, I've come to see it as this, that if you only have your characters interested in material things, you actually lose a layer of the novel that's always been possible, the subtle business that probably has its roots in religious writing, you know, particularly 17th century religious, religious writing, and that that, you know, coming in the form of sermons and storytelling, storytelling in sermons, and that that makes its way down slowly, almost like water dripping into the sense that any story told in a novel has to contain some element that isn't merely material. And you're working with that very carefully because if you overdo it, you lose it. If you, if you show it, if, if you give any sign that you're doing it, the reader sees it immediately, smells it and it's rotten because you're looking for too much for the form. But so you have to disguise it, conceal it, but it has to be there. You know, I, we just read uh, Robinson Crusoe in, in my history of the novel class. And, and we talked about this moment that I set up in the class as a kind of like a, a, a decision that Defoe makes about a crisis Robinson Crusoe has. Now that novel is, we, we know that he's on the island, he's like, you know, tending to his goats and he's, you know, he's, he's, it's very material. There are things all over that novel, but you're right. There's, there's this, um, reaching for the non-material in that foundational text too. And it really happens when he's been alone for 20 years and he sees a solitary footprint in the sand. And the, and the Defoe gives us like 10 pages of crisis yeah. um, of it's a purely internal crisis. He thinks it's the devil, it is spiritual. But yeah. this sort of sets up for the genre in my you know, narrative I tell, uh, a, a scene of personal crisis that happens to our protagonists. Um, that 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 takes the novel out of the material and puts it into the psychological, into the kind of you know 
but it's part of a kind of a journey for the protagonist. And I, yeah. I, it, when Isabel Archer, you know, stays up until the candles go out after she sees Madame Merle and Gilbert Osmond being too familiar in, in the drawing room, right? Um, or when Elizabeth Bennet reads Darcy's letter um, that explains himself and she has to have this whole chapter about her personal crisis. And, and so one question for you, and this happens in your novels, um, I've noticed around uh, death and, and someone, someone dying. This happens with James with Constance Fenmore uh, Wilson dying. It happens in the Mon book with his son dying. Um, it happens in Brooklyn. So I, that's a, that's a question about your work and about death as kind of like this moment, I guess, building off of what you just said about the novel searching for some things beyond the material and death being a, a moment when, um, when that comes up for protagonists, moments of crisis. Um, I, I wonder if you could respond, I could say more about how I think it's working in some of your fiction, but I wonder if you could say more about, you know, moments of crisis for protagonists and how, how that might be a way that novels get out of the material. And I love your Robinson Crusoe example, and I love the way you moved it into the word, using the word psychological, because psychological is probably the best word to use to describe the umbrella you must put up in order to get that, you know, to, to get that sense of the spiritual, that if you move it into religious terms, you lose it. But, right. but, but actually just merely making it psychological, merely letting someone muse over the possibilities of things, but in their own mind, that somehow brings with it a notion of soul. As, as, in the, as in the examples that you've given. Uh, I'm gonna be 67 this year and I'm writing a novel and it's the first novel I have written, which has no one dying wow. during, the, during the book. And I, this occurred to me one day I walked down the street, oh my God, I've got no one dying in this book. What does this say? And because in Australia a few years ago, a woman came up to me, she was getting a book signed and she was very nice until she suddenly looked at me and said, now, how many people die in this one? <laughs> I was taking it back. I had to say to her, I'm really sorry, but actually quite a number. I mean, I hope that's okay with you. I said, no, that's fine. I just want to know. Uh, that, um, that, um, there are several reasons for this. And the first one is personal, because I think you've always got to realize how much personal need, things that are unresolved in you, make their way into novels. In a way, that's what I'm trying to work out in James and Matt, but I'm working it out for very good reasons in, in that um, I, I think I know it, you know, that, 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 you, that you can't say there is a composing self that makes novels and there is the suffering, shivering being that, you know, shuffles into the study to do that. They connect and they connect sometimes in the strangest ways because you're often involved in magical thinking, you're imagining yourself as an only child, for example, which I've always wanted to be, is you imagine yourself as an only child. You imagine yourself, I mean, James imagines himself, you know, in, in various guises as, you know, throughout his life. Similarly, Thomas Mann imagines himself, um, you know, even in Dr. Faustus as a famous German composer. And um, so my father died when I was 12 and I never really got over that. It, it was at that time when no one knew that children went through things in the same way or perhaps even more than adults. And so you were simply left to your own devices. And say, oh, kids get over things. Kids are fine. They're, they're fine. Oh, they're really, no, they're fine. And um, that really haunted me. And so there was no chance I was ever going to write a novel without that getting into it. Um, I mean, so much so that my father's names are in that first novel, you know, and that, it just goes on, 
and um, you know, I, I was in the generation of gay men who, um, you know, when the when the when the AIDS crisis broke, you know, it was just when I was coming into my own, you know, and I was I was um, um, I suppose I was like 30, 35. And, you know, suddenly this became the most frightening thing. Yeah. After all the struggle, after all the struggles against silence, against legislation, against all forms of bigotry, suddenly we, there was an element of, in the cities of freedom and that very freedom then created a crisis in which, in which men died in the most terrible ways. And everyone was, every, everyone was so afraid. And so that made its way into two novels, into the Blackwater Lightship, into, into, into the story of the night. And um, what happened after that for me was that my, um, my mother died and, and then my two brothers died. And so that I, 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 and we had, we had, because the town was small and there was an extended family and there, was, um, there were two aunts that had no children who were living very close to us. And I was in the room with both of them when they died. And so that, that whole business of the disappearance of, there was a Christmas dinner we used to have in which there would be 20 people. It was, it was just went down each year. And then there were five years where it wouldn't go down. So you get used to it again, being 14 or 15. And then it would suddenly start again to go down and down and down. I, I mean, and then you realize it's going to be zero some year. And uh, so all of that pain and all of that, I think living in that world where Christianity really didn't really mean anything to me. But I was brought up in it. So there was a sort of clash between a notion of being a community believing in afterlife and redemption and, and all that and not believing that. So all of that made its way into the novels in ways which are unresolved. So I think that's the only explanation I can give you. If I try and give you a highfalutin one about the novel form itself lending itself to death, well, that, yeah, yeah, that may be. But, um, but I'm afraid this is, this is the only the, the explanation I can give you that really means most is that this is personal. And for some reason now, um, I had cancer. Um, I, I came out the other side of it. Um, I keep telling everyone I learned nothing from it. I was just, <laughs> just boring and it was painful. It was all that. But when I came out the other side of it, obviously, <laughs> you can suddenly rise and not. But it's also that I'm, that I'm happier, that I'm, um, I'm in love. And, um, but it's not just that. Whatever it is, anyway, I'm writing my novel, and it's free of that. For a change, I think there'll be a lot of general relief. That, uh, I don't quite know how to follow up all that. That's. Do, do you ever worry about putting people that you know in novels? Um, you know, I wrote Nora Webster about my mother, um, and most of the time, the novel is dedicated to my mother and my brother. And the three of us were in the house. And so I was the only one left. The other two had died. So, you know, that, that was strange. But um, I suppose in, you know, in, yes, in, in something like the Blackwater Lightship, some of the family configurations are clearly mine. And they did, yes, they did. They did recognize it. And it was funny. There was a very, very difficult weekend. And there was a thing that had never happened before where, you know, my mother actually stood up from the table and said, could someone drive her home? She wanted to get out of here. And, um, ooh, you know, ooh. <laughs> but that problem was solved very quickly because I was, I, 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 and the novel was published the same time as the Booker shortlist was to come out. And by some coincidence, I was on the list and that lifted everyone's spirits because my mother, when she would go downtown, 
would um, meet everybody who would congratulate her as though she had written something. Well, her son had, I suppose. And she sent me, and I used this, I think, in Brooklyn. She just sent me a big long list, like a ledger, like, like, a, like a very, you know, of all the people she'd met who had congratulated her on me being on the Booker shortlist for the Blackwater Lightship. A big long list of people in the town with no comment, just at the top saying, you know, I mean, she was highly ironic, my mother. She said, these are the people who have congratulated me on your being on the Booker shortlist. And I just, I don't know how she got the bit of paper, but it went right down like a scroll. And she sent it to me. And uh, that got over the whole problem. It was never mentioned again, the whole, the whole issue of um, putting, putting, putting people into your books. Great. I want to, I want to um, uh, change the subject a little bit. And, you know, the last time that I saw your poem was when I went, I ran down to New York to see the Testament of Mary um, with Fiona Shaw on Broadway and it, which was extraordinary. And I do like Tara. I love that novel. I think it's uh, amazing and kind of like thrilling. Um, my question though is, do you think when you write novels, and this is a question that my students had, when you write novels, do you, see them in other media. So, you know, Brooklyn was a great giant movie, um, Oscar nominated movie. Um, and obviously the Testament of Men and Mary was on Broadway. Do you think of novels writing for other media when you're writing a novel or is that something that comes after the novels? Um, the Testament of Mary was unusual. Uh, I mean, it, it began as a play. It began as a monologue for an actress and um, it was commissioned by the Dublin Theatre Festival. Just, I, I just, bumped into the director and we just had a conversation and out of the conversation came that. When the play was over and it ran a short time because it was in a festival and they were taking down the set and it was a Sunday evening and I walked up through Dublin. With, I, mean, I saw men coming up the stairs and said, what are these guys? They're, they're going coming to destroy the set and to take it away. So it's all going to be over. It's like breathing on glass, this business. Just wipe, wipe the glass. So we're going up through Dublin, walking home and I thought, actually, I have a huge amount of material that I didn't use in this. And I actually can see how it would begin. And I could, I'm going to start tomorrow morning on this. I, I, I'm actually, I also, the collaboration thing was fine. We're, we're all still talking to each other at the end of it. But it, it was always different. You're always making compromises. You were always trying to work out what does this person want and can I give it to her, you know, like the director or the designer or the actress. So going back in to the solitary business where you have such control, such power was really great for me and I and and I wrote the book and then that book in turn became the one that Fiona Shaw did so 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 it moved in that stage that, that's not obviously happened to any of the other books and the Brooklyn thing you know some films work and some films don't and you can never be sure why and we were just so lucky that that Saoirse Ronan had not done an Irish part before and if if we had had the money two years earlier which we didn't have she would have been too young so just at that very moment, we got this great actress. If we hadn't got this great actress, the film might have been very different. So things happen by chance, but no, as you're working on a novel, if you start thinking about movie rights or movies, like you really, really should go to law school and just get on with some, <laughs> you know, some playing some useful part in the community because like you should, you know, the, the idea that, oh, someone, this is going to make you money or this is going to be, you're going to be famous. Just get on with the next, because if you don't, if you start thinking like that, you will miss the magic image that I was talking about at the very beginning. It won't come because you're already, you know, bloated with greed. When I was rereading The Master, it opens with Wilde and his play. And then in Thomas Mann, um, in, in The Magician, you have... W.H. Auden and Isherwood. 
And in both of these novels, you have a relatively closeted, repressed gay writer, and then these foils where you have like openly gay writers um, in the novels too. And I'm just, I know you're interested in kind of in characters who can't say much or repression. Would you, would you ever write a novel about an openly gay novelist? I mean, you have obviously openly gay characters in a lot of your fiction, but is there, is the novel, is the novel genre for you? I mean, writing about novelists, can there be, is it interesting enough to you if you just write about a flagrantly gay novelist? Would you write a novel about Wilde or, you know, someone from the 20th century who's openly gay? No, I have no interest um, in anyone whose sexuality, I mean, in, in any, in exploring the life of any writer whose sexuality is clear. Um, in other words, I couldn't write about Joyce because it, it's not, I, there's no mystery involved. There's no darkness. And, and, um, and in, the, in the same way with Wilde, he's, he's absolutely clear to me, but I am, I do have a good lot of a novel, not the one I'm working on, but the one after that, which will be about the life of a gay man in Ireland in my lifespan, which of course will mean a lot of period when everything's cool, everything's easy. And, um, you know, so um, yeah, I am going to have a go at that. But um, what's, what's interesting with this is that I think every gay man in the closet is more frightened by a gay man out of the closet than they are by, you know, bullies or, you know, you know jocks or straight guys. There's a, there's a very frightening thing if you're 14 or 15, even still perhaps, that you're in the closet and you're watching every move you're making and you're trying to pass. And suddenly this guy comes in who's flaunting it. And he comes over and looks at you. And, and I look, this is everyone who's gay knows this. And it's out of your nightmare. And he suddenly sees it in you. <laughs> there's nothing you can do. All your passing, all your efforts, your invisibility, all dissolves. And what you want to do is get away from that guy as quickly as possible. So I'm sort of working with that. That the reason why man really finds all in initial wood obnoxious is not they're, they're not being obnoxious. Actually, he's so frightened by the two of them. And the, exactly the same thing happens with um, Henry James and Wilde. I, I don't have as much evidence. I mean, the, the, that scene is, is invented with, with um, Man and Auden. I mean, he did meet, he, he was with Auden that day. He just don't know what they said. But the stuff with James and Wilde, James really was afraid of Wilde. And he was afraid of that very thing about someone wandering around flaunting. I have one last question for, from my students, which I would love to ask you. What, what excites you most about creating a novel? So what is the most exciting part for you? Is it the characters, the mood, the sentences, the plot, like what's gonna to happen to characters? So when you, when, you, when, you, when you sit down to create a novel, what is the kind of, what seems exciting to you about that process? And then as in contrast to something that seems a little bit more um, mundane. And um, I have a book of poetry coming out next month and it's my first, um, it's, it's coming out in Boston. It's coming out with Beacon Press. And, um, Writing a poem has genuine excitement because you're, it's like a form of action. You're almost you're wiping words out. You're trying new things. You're seeing if it comes right. Writing novels is a dull business. It's, it's slow, it's plodding, and it's work. It, it's, you can be as excited as you like, but actually you have to get pages filled. And so it's the day-to-day -day dullness of it, the constancy of it, the fact that you cannot suddenly start another novel in the middle of this novel, that you have to finish it, that you have to go finish it, finish it, get up earlier. Why are you in bed? Why are you drinking? Why are you talking? Why are you on email? You know, so, so, so the excitement is not the word. It's, 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 it's noveling is a dull, novelists are dull, dull, dull people. And um, you need a basic dullness in you. And then once you're sitting down and doing it, um, 
as I said, something can come to you, a, a thing out of the blue that someone can say or do. But what's happening with me at the moment is I have written two sections of this novel with seven sections. So I'm on section three in my mind. And every day I get something new. Every day I work out a solution. This is just wandering around, staying in bed, just doing nothing. I get another solution. Now that's exciting where something that seemed intractable. You know, I was thinking there, there's a, because um, there's, a, there's a man in the book, a straight man, and I have to give him quite a lot of space at one point, but I can't think of where would that fit in the overall design. Yesterday, just yesterday, I realized that his conscience, the idea of what he knows to be right and wrong, is a very big thing for him. And if you let what you're talking about, the psychological thing happen, the, the staying up through the night thing happen, then you could give him an awful lot of sort of dynamic energy in the book that wouldn't have to be plot-led. You know, wouldn't have to be that he doesn't drive, he doesn't meet anyone, he doesn't, no, it's just him, him alone. So the, those things are exciting where you get a new perspective and you get it in the strangest ways before you write. And then as you write in the detail, but I have to say that the main business of writing is dollars, 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 dollars. Um, okay, I'm gonna jump in now with the very last question of the episode. Um, novel dialogue always ends with a signature question. And this season, um, the signature question is, Colm, if you could snap your fingers and have an extraordinary new talent, what would that be? Uh, there are a few things. I'd like to be a good mimic. Um, and um, yeah, I'd like to be able to sing really well. Yeah. Um, I think George Orwell has said he'd like to be attractive to women. Well, thank you very, very much, both of you. Okay, well, thank you. Thank you. you. Take care. Finally, I want to remind listeners that Colm's latest novel, The Magician, is available in bookstores everywhere. We at Novel Dialogue are grateful to the Society for Novel Studies for its sponsorship and to Public Books for its partnership. We also wish to thank Duke and Brandeis Universities for their support. Hannah Jorgensen is our production intern and designer, Claire Ogden, our sound engineer, and James Draney, our blog editor. Thanks so much for listening.